everybody, and welcome to another episode of Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Boshma. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Carsonson. He is an airway-centric dentist who has treated patients with sleep apnea and snoring in Bellevue, Washington since 1988. He's the consultant to the ADA for sleep-related breathing disorders. He's trained at UCLA's mini residency in sleep and is a diplomat of the American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine. Dr. Carsonson lectures internationally, directs sleep education at Airway Technologies and the Pankey Institute, and is a guest lecturer at Spear Education, University of the Pacific, and Louisiana State Dental Schools. He was a board member for the AADSM, editor of Dental Sleep Practice Magazine, and co-authored A Clinician's Handbook of Dental Sleep Medicine. You can find out more about Dr. Carsonson at seattlesleepeducation.com and at stevecarsonsondds.com. And now I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Steve Carsonson. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you anytime, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So before we dig in, let's talk about just so everybody kind of has a, a baseline of what we're discussing. What actually is dental sleep medicine? That's a great question, actually. And I got a little background for you because as part of uh, Dental Sleep Practice Magazine, where I'm the chief dental editor, I just interviewed a dentist who started the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. It was called the Sleep Disorders Dental Society back then, 30 years ago, this year. Okay. Wow. And so I was asking Dr. Rogers, I said, you know, tell me about the term dental sleep medicine, kind of the same question you just asked me. And he said that he coined the term about 20 years ago to describe how dentists interact with physicians and how do we blend them together? Because we have mm-hmm. dentistry and we have medicine in the specific field of sleep. And how it got started back then is the physicians were figuring out how to help people who were sleeping badly and it turned out they were breathing badly when they were sleeping and so they discovered the the disease of obstructive sleep apnea came up with some treatments and dental medicine provided treatment for that at the same time that CPAPs provided treatment for that Mm -hmm. so dentists were involved from the beginning of treating bad breathing at night for adults it's all adults back then Right. And, uh, and so they said, well, how do we make, how do we label ourselves? Because we're not, not just, you know, at the time they were thinking not just dentistry. So they decided to call it dental sleep medicine. So it's really just trying to describe the intersection between what dentists can do uh, with primarily mandibular advancement devices in adults and what physicians can do uh, for the medical side of the disease. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it, now it's an imperfect term, but it's, it's what we think about these days. It's what we thought about 30 years ago. Yeah. So can dentists actually diagnose sleep apnea? Not currently. No, what um, the, the, the disease of sleep apnea is a medically recognized problem. Mm-hmm. So um, the role that physicians have to diagnose is important because there's a lot of interactions with other medical problems that dentists aren't trained about at all. What dentists can diagnose is a mechanical problem with breathing. In other words, we can tell whether somebody snores, we can tell whether somebody's airway is closing, but the medical uh, situation of obstructive sleep apnea is a medical diagnosis. We need physicians for that. Okay. And typically a physician, you would, you would, recommend somebody to a physician or tell them, you know, Hey, this is what I see. And you would communicate with that physician somehow. Yeah. The the biggest problem we have in in the world really is, and it's talking about United States and adults so far, we're going to talk about kids here in a little bit. I know we are. uh, Oh yeah. We're going to talk about adults for just a second because that kind of sets the stage. Mm -hmm. And, um, and for adults, what we have is that, 25 years ago or so when I was learning about all this stuff, they told me that 15% of the adults that have sleep apnea have actually been diagnosed. Today, in 2022, if you go to the the best experts, they may grudgingly acknowledge that 20% of the people 
that should be diagnosed have actually been through a process. So we're not getting anywhere and getting adults diagnosed over these 25 years. So that's one of the problems we have is that we only have a few physicians doing a diagnosis. So what dentists can do is what we're going is we can make more people aware that they have a breathing problem and facilitate their the diagnostic process. And that's changed a whole bunch in the last even couple of years. COVID has drawn uh, a new set of rules up for diagnosis. Really? Uh, How so? Yeah, because the uh, in-person visits have gone to be minimized. Mm. We learned uh, when we were forced to do telehealth mm-hmm. that in fact, telehealth works pretty good, especially yeah. for something that's more consult- consultative like sleep medicine and able to be tested in remote facilities. In the early days, this, the only testing they had was in um, specialized uh, rooms and hospitals. Uh, nowadays, that's, that's still done, but it's done at less often because we have home uh, ways of testing at home. So, so you can get a sleep lab level quality at home in, in kind of a real life environment? Not quite accurate statement. Um, okay. Home, real life environment, those two are true. Quality sleep lab quality not quite there not yet. Quite there. Okay, but it's getting there because the technology is getting better, faster, cheaper. Okay. Withings, a, a big company out of France, that has a lot of technology. They've really jumped on the board for um, these remote monitoring devices, and they have a pad, in fact, that goes underneath a mattress that measures many of the same bio signals. New kind of a new term for us all: bio signals. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they measure the same biosignals that we get out of the, quote, official, unquote, home sleep apnea test. Hmm. And because it's all in the cloud, uh, they just released a study that had 68,000 patients over 11.6 million sleep nights. You know, biggest bunch of data that's ever been gathered about sleep. And they found out that 20% of the sleep tests nights we're incorrect. So back to your question, sleep lab quality at home, not quite because we have devices that accurately measure the biosignals, but we have to think that one out of five of those nights of testing is probably inaccurate. Mm. And that means that if you go to your sleep physician, you're, you're say you're, you're screened by your dentist. Okay. And, and okay, great. You know what? That snoring is a problem. So I'll go and get tested. And I, I get hold of my of a physician, a sleep physician, and he and the physician says, "Great, I'll send you a monitor. You strap it on. We'll we'll learn how you do." And you get one night with that. What if that's one of the five nights? Or if that's your five, yeah. You know, now we have now we have the worst possible. We have a false negative because we have a patient who has complaints. I'm snoring. I'm not feeling well. A dentist who says, "Dude, you got to do something about this." The patient actually becomes one of the 20% and they go and they seek a diagnosis, but the test is faulty. And so the test says, no, patients, you don't have a diagnosis. You don't have a disease. Well, now what's, what's the answer? The sleep physician doesn't have any place to go because their, their test says no. The patient still says, okay, dentist, you told me I was in trouble. Now I'm, now they said I'm not in trouble. So what am I supposed to do about this? Right. You know, and so it's so it's a it's a conundrum that we haven't quite solved yet. But the solution is going to be the fact that we can do multiple nights testing now for low money and low trouble. And uh, if that's the case, then we can accept that first night and go, oh, that that doesn't line up so that's much. With clinical. Let's yeah. try right. But it all comes down to money on that. And insurances. Are we at the point that insurances will pay for or or? supplement these tests at home? Sometimes. Uh, what the, the common, the accepted protocol right now is that if the clinical symptoms don't line up with the home sleep test, then the, that qualifies the patient to go into that in-lab, you know, very detailed study. But that costs thousands of dollars for that mm-hmm. study. Right. And so the insurance companies, they don't pay for that. So what is going to happen, I think, is uh, they'll the insurance companies will say, okay, great, doctor, um, you feel free to have the patient do multiple nights at home 
so we can eliminate that one in five uh, event. But that data is all brand new and the insurance companies have, you know, they don't change quickly. Uh, right. so most of the sleep physicians I work with here in the Seattle area do one night tests. And if they don't qualify that way, if it doesn't line up clinically, it doesn't make sense to them that into the sleep lab, the patient is invited. Uh, but patients don't like those sleep tests. In right. And, uh, and, and, and so it's a, it's a, just a problem. Another one physician around here does three nights all the time because he's aware of the details of these, of this stuff, but I'm not sure how that's paid for uh, because the insurance companies don't tend to like to pay extra. Right. Right. Yeah. Understood. So when it comes to adults, I know that traditionally, and we've, we've had another guest on that's, that's spoken about this, the CPAP is the yeah. way to go. You know, that the yeah. outside, I don't know what you call Correct. that. Yeah. yeah. Right. The equipment. Yeah. Um, but I heard you speak about the tap system. Right. So what exactly is the TAP system? Is that an alternative? Sure. Well, we got to back up again. Um, okay. So uh, when they discovered the problem of obstructive sleep apnea, what Dr. John Rimmers came up with is, wow, these people's airway collapses behind their tongue. Mm-hmm. And so the treatment that he and Dr. Colin Sullivan came up with is, well, if we put a little bit of air pressure into the upper airway through the nose, then we can splint that airway open so it doesn't collapse when they breathe. Okay, great. That's That became CPAP. CPAP. And the measurement that they used the, to as the kind of the dragon to fight in sleep apnea is called the apnea hypopnea index. They measure how many times does somebody stop breathing? How many times does their breathing get restricted? And they divide by the time factor and they have an index. So that's our score system. Okay. If, okay. our, uh, if our goal is to fix the score down to normal, CPAP is the very best thing possible because that's a, the, the, it, it fixes the AHI, the apnea hypopnea index, the score. It fixes that. Okay. But the problem is, is it comes with a bunch, bunch of baggage. And so the patients don't like it. They, you know, of course, some patients do like it, but only about 30% of people, according to most studies, actually use the CPAP the way they're supposed to. So we have a treatment that does, it's very effective when it's being used, but it's only being used 30% of the time correctly. Mm-hmm. But it's still labeled gold standard treatment. And I, I, I think that label has to go away because there's, it's not possible to call something gold standard. It's only used 30% of the time. Makes sense. And study after study nowadays is showing that the overall health impact of CPAP is lessened because of this lack of use. Okay. So back to the early 80s, and uh, already by the early 80s, the dentists were saying, well, wait a minute, CPAP isn't being used very well. People don't like that. Back then, even bigger, noisier, more cumbersome devices. Wow. And so some very smart dentists, Tom Mead in, in Albuquerque, uh, Keith Thornton in Dallas, several uh, Alan Lowe up in, in Victoria, Vancouver, BC, and others, we're coming up with these ways of holding the airway open, just thinking about the 3D anatomy. Mm-hmm. Is that we have a movable lower jaw, our mandibles right. can jut forward. And soft tissues like the base of the tongue are attached to that movable bone. So if we move the bone forward, maybe we get the soft tissues out of the way and do the same thing the CPAP was trying to do. So oral appliances were developed to do that very thing. And the Thornton adjustable positioner, named after Keith Thornton, who invented it, called the TAP was one of the earliest devices. And so the TAP system I think is great because of a couple of things I'll tell you about in a second, but it's really just part of what is now 150 or so FDA cleared devices, all aimed to do the same thing, which is to keep the airway from collapsing while people sleep. 150 approved devices? Somewhere in that range. I don't know the exact number, but it's, okay. it's in that very, it's, it's close to that number now. I had no idea. Yeah. Because the thing is, holding the jaw forward is the thing, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of invention associated with the, with the um, the way to do that, and that's the big contrast with CPAP. Because although positive air pressure (PAP) part of those things, it can be applied in several different ways. Because there's CPAPs, there's BiPAPs, there's adaptive PAPs, there's all these kind of things. It's all positive air pressure. 
But oral appliances uh, have all these different designs because they really were developed in the hands of creative dentist types. Okay. And so, or some engineers, but mostly dentists. And so what they said, well, wait, we could try this little wing or that screw or this kind of mechanism or this hook or whatever the case may be. And it's all aimed to hold the jaw forward in different and more, you know, in their view, the most comfortable, the most effective, the easiest to uh, the patients to adhere to. And the, the key to it right there is, is it effective for the the problem does it fix the ahi score but also other things mm -hmm. and also and will the patients accept it whereas cpap has to be accepted by what how does the mask fit how quiet can we make the pump mm -hmm. you know those kind of things the right. oral appliances being customized by dentists who completely understand the, the anatomy and the function of the that part of the body the the oral cavity and the head and neck they can say, well, this wing would be more comfortable. This design would address this muscle issue. You know, this way we can give people to adjust it will be something that they'll actually use. So they now, put would the tap the stay in. Yeah. Does the does the tap stay in? Is it an oral appliance you wear all the time, or is it just yeah. when you sleep? Oh, you only need uh, to support the airway during sleep. Okay. Yeah, while we're all awake, the muscles of our airway resist negative pressures of breathing. When you breathe in, you pull a negative pressure into your chest to fill your lungs. Well, mm -hmm. so we have muscle function to, to keep that from collapsing in the daytime. Nighttime is when that muscle function goes away and taps and others uh, keep that from collapsing. So the tap has a benefit because it holds the jaw forward with a little connector in the front. So it's, so it's, it's free moving uh, side to side, but not forward and back. So the okay. jaw can't fall backwards while somebody sleeps. And then the other thing that TAP has going for it that I really like is that it comes with a, a, a removable silicone mouth shield. So it goes under your lips and makes you a nose breather. And nose ah. breathing nose breathing is the key to health. Yes, and it then, is. Yeah, and we're gonna that's going to transition us into talking about kids because yeah. uh, Dr. Thornton uh, said, wait a minute, we, we emphasize nose breathing for kids all the time. So what about these adults and these appliances? What, what, how can we make sure that happens? He, they came up with a silicone cover in the tap system that makes you an obligate nose breather. And that turns out to have so many health benefits that now we're going for far more than just fixing the score of the AHI. We're actually helping improve physiology by making sure people breathe through their nose. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, that does that transitions right into where we we're going to go, which is hey. talking about kids. Hey, look at that. <laughs> kids, kids and kids health, you know, because we, we know that um, as adults, you know, what you know, we've heard, right? We've all heard what sl not sleeping can do to you, right? you know, and, and, and all the health impacts, but we really haven't until recently talked about breathing and sleep and the way they correlate with children and their health, right. um, you know, as they're growing, but then that's, what's going to manifest and cause all these health implications as they get older. Um, so when we're talking about kids and we're talking about, let's just start with sleep specifically, you know, why is that so important for kids? Well, you know what? You know the really interesting part about that, Rebecca? Mm -hmm. They don't really know. We don't know why, uh, uh, we don't know the function of sleep in, in great detail. There's been big volumes written. Uh, one of the best is by Matthew, uh, Park, Matthew, Matthew Walker. Matthew Walker, yeah. yeah. Why We Sleep. Why We Sleep, yes. But even that's about adults. And mm -hmm. so the, um, the key about kids is uh, so difficult to test. Sleep medicine came around because of adult problems, uh, uh, adults having troubles in hospitals, adults being observed by physicians. So the rules are written for measuring adults. The, the, the tools were developed to measure adults. And somewhere along the way, uh, of course, pediatricians and uh, physicians said, look, there's little kids out there that don't seem to be sleeping well either. And there's these behavioral troubles. 
Mm-hmm. And in my practice, like, for example, you know, I have 55 year olds in my practice that have chronic disease, chronic inflammatory related diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Where did that come from? It came from decades of struggling to breathe at nighttime. Mm-hmm. So if I have a 55 year old in my practice, at one point, they were 5.5 year old. Right. And so could there be a, been a root cause of some of these uh, adult problems in children? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it makes logical sense, mm-hmm. but then you kind of mm-hmm. try to go to medicine and science and think, how, how are we going to figure this out? Right. And the only good way to figure, the only, oh, not good, the only uh, incontrovertible way of doing this is to gather up a bunch of 5.5 year olds, get a figure, figure out whether they breathe badly at nighttime, put half of them into some kind of treatment to fix that and leave the other half untreated mm-hmm. and then wait until they're 55 and see what happens. Well, there's many things wrong with that. You, you'll never be able to do that study because once you diagnose a child, especially with a disease, they don't have the, the, the they can't be the 55 year old says, I'm not gonna treat this. They, you know, you can't ethically withhold treatment from, from them. So right. we can't do randomized control trials. Right. All we can do is we can look at populations of kids who were treated and populations of kids who's families decided that treatment wasn't going to be possible for them for whatever reason that is and then look and see so that makes matching populations a little difficult some of it's been done karen bonnick has done a big study in a, in a town in england that's now about 20 years old so we have some pretty good data about what goes on but what we don't have to rely upon is the fact that we can consider a child who doesn't breathe well to be less healthy than a child who does breathe well. That makes sense. We don't need science to tell us more than that. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out why they don't breathe well. And if they don't breathe well from bad habits, like for some reason they've just developed a mouth breathing habit, maybe we can Mm -hmm. fix that. You're listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. Steve Carsonson. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, a parent's forum, and so much more. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, back to our interview with Dr. Stephen Carsonson. Right. And we try and measure what's going wrong. All we're really doing there, Rebecca, is we're measuring a symptom. Because if they don't sleep well, it's because they don't breathe well. Right. So why would we treat the sleep problem? Let's treat the breathing problem. And so why wouldn't they breathe well? We have to think backwards on that one. And now we run into a big problem because if they don't breathe well, it could be a habit, but it could also be an underdevelopment of the, what Dr. Kevin Boyd, somebody else you're going to have on your program, no doubt, because he's a world expert. um, He's also uh, on our board. (laughs) Yeah. All those things. Kevin's, yes. you know, we're, we're so grateful in the world to have a Kevin Boyd. Yes. But he came up with a term called the craniofacial respiratory complex, mm-hmm. CFRC. And I told Kevin, I said, I love that concept. I love the thought of a craniofacial respiratory complex as the thing that we have to think about. I don't love the term because it's hard to say. It's very hard to say. It's very hard to say. But, you know, can you briefly explain to people that don't know what that is? Of course, yeah. So think I'll explain the term craniofacial respiratory complex. So we have the cranium. Mm -hmm. That's the the skull. That's where your brain is. And that's the base of things. That's what things grow from. Right. The facial portion is what we see from the front. It's the, the your cheekbones. It's your those, the support of your cheek and the how far forward your nose is, how far forward your teeth are. Where does your chin go? Mm-hmm. And how wide is this? So it's the three-dimensional structure that's the face. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Well, what's what's inside the face? Of course, are, are things that dentists pay attention to, like teeth and bites and smiles. But also those same bones that support what we see as the face and the nose and the teeth supports the airway. Mm-hmm. So as and we dentists and ENT doctors as well, but mostly dentists are the specialty in medicine for how that face develops we're the only part of medicine that can go into a 5.5 year old recognize that that bone is not growing to support the airway properly and do something about it now we're not talking about syndromic kids kids that have a genetic problem where they're you know they just have a growth issue that's developed by their genes we're talking about normal kids the the millions and millions of normal kids and um and I don't mean normal as, you know, anyway, so, so the right. regular kids, regular kids, right. there's a better word. All right. So, uh, so, so if you, if in a regular kid in a, in a practice, in a dental practice where the dentist is looking at the structure of things, cranium, we're not going to do much about cranium. Uh, right. We're going to do, we can do a lot about facial and we can do a lot about respiratory, the, the way that the child is breathing. Because we can measure that and we can look at it and we can we can ask about that and we can notice things. Notice and things such a, as like the, the jaw being too far back or there's not enough room or what kind of things do you notice? Yeah, we can know the first off is are they breathing through their nose or their mouth? Mm. You know, if, if a child is sitting in your dental chair or sitting out in your reception room or in your family mm-hmm. and they're breathing through their mouth, that's wrong. That's a sign. Yep. Yeah. Because when the mouth is open and therefore breathing through the mouth, there's several bad things that happen, several bad things. One of them is the tongue can't be in the roof of the mouth because if it is, you can't breathe through your mouth. Right. That means your tongue is in the floor of your mouth. Okay. Well, if your mouth is open, your chin down, mouth open, your cheeks now put a little bit of pressure on the width of the upper jaw, the maxilla. Mm-hmm. And because the tongue is in the floor of the mouth, it can't resist that pressure on the palate. So therefore, the maxilla is pinched narrow. And when the maxilla is pinched narrow, the palate is pushed upwards. It's pushed <laughs> upwards into the nose. So now we have less room in the nose. And where should, because I know everybody's going to be doing this at home. Where yeah. should your tongue be actually? Your tongue should be in your palate all the time. You know, not when I'm talking, but I'm right. resting. My tongue should rest against my palate. And, uh, and, and not just the tip of my tongue up there, you know, behind my front teeth, but my whole, whole body of my tongue should rest against the whole body of my palate. And in a 5.5-year-old, when that happens, then that little bit of pressure from the tongue resists the pressure from the cheeks, and the maxilla grows wider. The palate looks like the top of the tongue. Top of the tongue's flat, big, broad space. Mm-hmm. A palate should look like that. It shouldn't be a narrow little canyon. And because when it is a narrow canyon, the, it's going upwards and upwards into the nose, and it takes the middle of the nose, the septum, and bends it over to one side. So we end up with a deviated Stop septum. Mm-hmm. And it, then um, if you can't breathe well through that smaller space, the low pressure there makes the soft tissues of the nose, the turbinates and other things that are involved in the nose, it, it, it makes them bigger, which makes it even harder to breathe through your nose. So right. it's a complex. So, so the, the diagnosis isn't that these kids can't sleep well. The diagnosis is they're breathing badly through a small space. And we dentists can do that. We don't need a sleep study to tell if this child is mouth breathing. We don't need a sleep study to know where the tongue position is or, or whether the jaw structure is growing too narrow or back too far. Right. So, so we, we diagnose what we can diagnose, which is problems in this craniofacial respiratory complex. Now, the other cool part about this is we dentists can do something about the growth and development of the bones, but we mostly dentists and hygienists currently aren't trained in how to deal, do anything about the tongue position or how the tongue functions or whether the swallow is correct. 
So we have our myofunctional therapy uh, colleagues and our speech and language pathology colleagues to help us with training these little ones to be to function properly into this in this complex the dentist can do something about and neither one of those strategies are available to sleep physicians okay yeah. okay yeah and you mentioned something that uh, I, I mean i understand it now from working with the children's airway foundation yeah. but y'all aren't trained to, to to look at airways and, and to function, I mean, to focus on airways. Yeah. That to me is just mind boggling. I. Well, we're, we're trained, we're, well, currently Rebecca, we're not trained enough to focus on airways. We're trained to focus on the part of the body that controls the airway, mm -hmm. but, but like, like orthodox, for example, our orthodontic colleagues are trained currently Mm -hmm. To see kids in, in now what Kevin Boyd calls geriatric ages, you know, like seven and nine, mm -hmm. um, to and, and see what they're trained to see, which is a beautiful smile, a, um, a, a bite that looks good, that coordinates with the function of the jaw joints. Those are three great outcomes for an orthodontic process, right? At whatever age it is. Good bite, nice smile, coordinated with the jaw. Sure. What we have to do, though, is we have to add in this airway focus. And the instruction in that is ad hoc at this point, because it's not part of hardly any dental schools. There's a little bit of work going on in some dental schools, but not enough. Okay. Not part of medicine at all. Right. And so uh, groups like Children's Airway Force Foundation and uh, the American Academy of Physiologic Medicine and Dentistry, AAPMD, um, ASAP, uh, ASAP is a group of dentists who have uh, developed a children's focused um, education program. I'm very proud of the American Dental Association for carrying on the children's airway initiative that we started with Dr. Boyd and I and others started in 2018. Um, so, um, so we have a growing amount of focus in education of dentists after dental school to pay attention to this from an airway perspective, you know, as a, as a craniofacial respiratory complex, not just a good group of teeth, you know? Right. Right. Um, and link, I'll have links to everything that you just mentioned in our podcast. So, you know, right. people can go check all of that out, which is awesome. One of the things that Dr. Boyd has mentioned, and I know you and I have talked about this before as a mom, you know, the first time I heard him, say this, I about fell out of my chair and thought I'm a horrible parent because he talks about, you know, these kids that are 11, 12, 13, we're, we're taking out teeth and we're putting on retractive braces, yeah. um, which, you know, I get it. I, I, under, I understand that. But now knowing what these signs and symptoms are of airway disorders, you know, that's the part as a mom that just sent me tail spinning going, Oh, wow. I missed it on one of my kids. Oh my gosh. Right. So parents that are at this crossroads, you know, that are being told, this is where we are. This is what you need. What are some things they could look for to ensure this is the right solution for their child? Cause sometimes I, it is, but then what are the repercussions if they have an undiagnosed airway? Well, um, one thing, one message we'd like to, for all parents, families, um, all inclusive, let's just call it uh, families, okay? Yeah. Because there's families of all kinds of descriptions, right? Absolutely. So, uh, so the, the, what families should look at is how early in life do, can we detect any signs of problems? And uh, one of the things that's really common is, uh, a, let's call it a five-year-old, five-and-a-half, six, seven-year-old. Mm -hmm. uh, if the front teeth have a beautiful smile, they're all touching like we'd look for in adult teeth. There's no gaps between the teeth. That's a very scary smile because what it tells us is that the bone structure isn't big enough yet. So when a child gets to be teenager years, middle school, and they go to the orthodontist and the orthodontist says, oh, we don't have enough room for all of these teeth. We're going to have to pull out teeth and pull some things back together so we can give you this beautiful smile. Mm -hmm. So dentists that are paying attention to airway think, oh, that's horrible. 
we should never take out teeth, you know, that extraction is the, is the evil part. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree that extraction is the bad thing to do, but the problem isn't the teeth. The problem's in the craniofacial facial respiratory mm-hmm. complex. The problem's in the bone, in the structure, in the airway support. Right. And for that, we have to look earlier in life. Okay. So what do we do? What's the message? The message is as early in life as possible, get a pediatric dentist or a dentist, a family dentist who knows about these things to give an assessment for breathing and airway. And some orthodox, more and more, <clears throat> more and more orthodox are, are understanding this expansion of their oversight. And they're paying attention to airway as well. That's what uh, CAF is going to be. You know, that's the message out there, isn't it? Yes, is it to is. get more, more of these health professionals paying attention to these little kids early in life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then we can intervene when we can still grow the bone very easily. Yes. Because when Kevin sees a little kid who at five or four or three that has a developing problem, they can put in a little tiny springy thing and that bone responds to that. Uh, mm-hmm. They can have the kid trained on how, where to put their tongue when they swallow and the bone responds to that. And so they're all, when they're now when they're in middle school, the orthodox looks in there and goes, Oh, the teeth are kind of twisted around a bit. Let's, let's, let's line them up. Right. So we have a beautiful smile, but we don't have to worry about taking out teeth because there's plenty of bone there to hold all those roots. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the goal we have. It's when they're in middle school, they get the aesthetic alignment and the bite coordination, all the good things, but they don't have to worry about the size of the space. Right. Because that would have already been taken care of. Because it grew big enough. Yeah. Right. Right. And and what at what age? And just because I want to hear you say it, uh, because (laughs) I was surprised about this again as a mom. What age should or well, I'm going to use the word should. Should you start taking a child to the dentist? Well, before age one. Yeah. He, See, uh, that blows my mind. Yeah. Well, because it blows, your, it blows my mind, too. I don't, tre- as you know, I don't treat little kids. Right. You know, I've never treated little kids. My dental practice was an adult dental practice. Mm-hmm. I'm super passionate about treating little kids in other people's offices now because, uh, uh, because they can. And it's so mm-hmm. important. So the pediatric dentists ha- are, have all the behavioral training to start a child before age one mm-hmm. on things that can be done age appropriate for that. Now, we're not going to put any little springy expanders in a one-year-old. That's not going to happen. Right, right. But, uh, but what we can pay attention to is, are they breathing through the mouth? Is there an allergy problem? Is there even a tongue position? Sharon Moore, another future guest of yours. Yes. Is gonna, uh, we, she talked last night about a child that she's seeing who's a year and nine months. And so before age two there, and this child has special needs, but all the things that Sharon was talking about, she could do. Uh, we, we, on the, the, we're listening to her talk. We're understanding she could do that on non-special needs children, even before age one, because there's amazing things that parents can do in this case, mostly moms, but uh, can do for their 12 month or their 10 month old to get them on the right track. Right, such as what are just a couple of them? Yeah, here's an easy one. If uh, a mom of a newborn or a you know few months old notices mouth breathing, mm-hmm. there's cultures where the, the, the standard is just the mouth, the mom reaches over, just holds her lips together. Doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you don't have to do anything fancy, just hold the lips together. Start a good habit of nose breathing. Of course, there's a whole a bunch of things that can be learned about uh, breastfeeding and tongue position of that and how to swallow. And is that there's a, is there a tissue that has to be removed and several things about that that are all detailed that you'll have future uh, on future uh, programs here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, uh, because even at, at nursing time, breastfeeding time for six months, eight, however long it lasts, um, that's that starts the whole process of muscle training. And bone development of the craniofacial respiratory complex. Right. So when when a pediatric dentist gets involved, you know, before age one, when a family dentist gets involved, maybe at three or four or five, you know, then then we can start to recognize these troubles as early in life as possible and intervene 
as early in life as possible. Right. You know, when they're still malleable and we can make a difference. Yeah, Because mm-hmm. yeah, the bone is all plastic during those years, you know, it can be pushed around. Mm-hmm. And, and if we recognize a deficiency in growth, well, isn't it better to, to you know, aim that growth at the right, uh, at the right time. target? Yeah, well, absolutely. Because we can do it later on in teenage years and adult years. I can, I, I, uh, a really top quality orthodontist, Dr. Bacow in my town, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, can do uh, surgical procedures and move the bones around in 60-year-olds. But isn't it better at six, you know? Right. Agreed. Agreed. And I know we touched on this briefly, but as far as, you know, your concept and, and your ideal, how should going forward in, in the best yeah. scenario, airway centric dentists and pediatricians, how should they be collaborating and working together? Sure. So a, a child goes to a, typically goes to a pediatrician for some well child visits, but oftentimes they're in there because of a complaint, mm-hmm. you know, a cold uh, allergies, you know, it's not doing well. Well, if the child just isn't doing well, what would be the reason for that? And, and so the, if the pediatrician's eyes are opened for seeing mouth breathing, for seeing, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a bad habits that way, uh, a tongue that doesn't seem to fit, quote, in the mouth. Right. Those are things that can be addressed early in life. But the, the pediatrician doesn't have to know how to do that. That's, that's, they're not trained in this either. Right. So they send them to the right pediatric dentist who now is, and the pediatric dentist says, okay, on this team, I'm going to need some habits, habit correcting. My dental assistant can help you with that. I have a speech and language pathologist with training in myofunctional therapy that can help you with that. I have a dental hygienist with training in myofunctional therapy that can help you with that. And by the way, this jaw structure is too narrow here and set back too far. And so for your child, uh, parent, let's, let's think about doing this little expander. Or this this habit corrector. There's there's out of the uh, off the shelf habit correctors that these kids can use, where they just bite on this thing and it helps train the muscles. They helps to shape the bone, helps to train the tongue. All of these come with exercisers. So uh, and some real popular ones are Healthy Start and uh, Mile Brace, U uh, Control. There's several of these kind of things out there. Okay. That can that every uh, dentist who gets trained on this by some of the organizations we talked about earlier mm-hmm. can uh, use some of these protocols to give families an easy solution. You know, it's not difficult for a child to accept that they have to you know chew on this little thing for an hour a day while they're playing. Because right. if they if you make that a routine, the the kid goes, "Yeah, I can do that." You know, yeah, they just do on. it. Yeah, they watch the videos, they play the games, they do all the cool things that are made for kids. Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, they get themselves out of trouble. And, okay. and they go to the pediatrician for the next one. And the pediatrician says, what happened to your child? They, they used to be listless. Now they're mm-hmm. full of energy. Mm-hmm. Or even better, they used to be uncontrollable, full of energy. And now yes. they're normal. Right. Which is, is something that, that I, I think is interesting that. Um, hypoxic brain injury. So you'll see kids with yeah. the lowering IQs, ADHD, kids are getting labeled with that. And it right. turns out it's an airway issue. Right. Not always, but a lot of times it is. Yeah. Stephen Sheldon, one of our, our Stephen Sheldon, a, a physician in Chicago, he's a DO uh, sleep specialist up in Chicago at Lurie Children's. Mm-hmm. He's one of our, uh, you know, global heroes in this. He actually says he doesn't think ADHD exists. He thinks it's a brain response to other problems. And the other problem that's the primary one is breathing issues. It's breathing, mm-hmm. yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Now, so I, I mentioned- I'm not sure I can agree. I, I mean, I'm certainly not a diagnostician for ADHD, right. but um, but some kids have, some, have, have so too many kids have benefited from the medications to mm-hmm. say it doesn't exist in my view. But I think the vast majority of those kids haven't been uh, addressed, haven't been evaluated for breathing issues. Right. And right. so, so I think that no child should be put on a ADHD medication without being evaluated for breathing issues by a competent dentist or an orthodontist is trained in the craniofacial respiratory complex. I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, 
So you've mentioned a couple of organizations, and I, I just want to give you a moment, an opportunity to speak about those. Sure. Um, you know, we've talked about the AAPMD and the ASAP, um, and then I see behind you, you've got your Collaboration Cures 2022. Yeah, yeah so, uh, you know, share a little bit about that with people, about these organizations and your involvement and what they sure. do. Well, um, the American Dental Association, the group for dentists, passed a policy statement for airway issues a few years ago, 2017. So that got the ADA on board. And as those of us that have started to expand our practices into more and more airway, we've also come together in subgroups in AAPMD uh, and another, there's several of them, AOSH, American Academy of Oral Systemic Health, and some others have realized that, wow, you know, respiration and breathing patterns, they are the fundamental. We're trying to help people get healthy across Mm -hmm. the board. We can't do that if they don't breathe well. Right. So, um, you know, being small groups of dentists that are passionate about a certain subject, we find each other and we then start to think, what can we learn from each other? And it turns out there's physicians and there's physical therapists and there's speech and language pathologists all on the same kind of thinking plane. Mm-hmm. So we come together once a year and we call it collaboration cures because it's putting everybody together to try and find a way out of this health problem that we have. And in 2022, it's going to be in September in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And it's filled with speech and language pathologists and physical therapists and physicians and dentists and and functional medicine folks. And, and we're all coming together to learn from each other and to sit in a, in a conference room and, and hear a great lecture, to do, go through a workshop, to have a mixer where we you know sit down with our DO colleagues or our PTs that we've never talked to before and say, what can you do to help right. me understand the craniofacial respiratory complex even better? And, and what can I do to help you? I mean, it's just mm-hmm. all of that. It's just a fantastic group. It's my favorite um, event of the year is to go to Collaboration College, uh, Collaboration Cures. Nice. And, and I, I believe, isn't that where, did you meet? No, that's not where you met Candy. No, I met her at, at, earlier uh, in the year. Different uh, meeting and myofascial yeah. group, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. But, you well, know, it's just, and, and and going to any of these um, mm-hmm. uh, is is empowering because the when you go to a when dentists I can speak from a dentist standpoint we go to a dental conference there's so much going on there's lectures about two, vast numbers of subjects there's a giant exhibit hall and finding a small group of people that are passionate about a something that just really excites you is more difficult. You go to a smaller meeting, like a myofunctional meeting, and you run into a Candy Sparks, and you realize, wow, you know, look at the energy right here. There's that's attractive. So I want to find out more about that. And so I sit down with a Candy Sparks. I sit down with a, with a Brad Guild and the physical therapist. I sit down with a Sharon Moore, the SLP, and and I, I learn what drives them, and they hear what drives me. Right. And and we all work together, and it's really it's really fun and energizing and changing it is changing yeah you can go to a lot of conferences and you go away and you don't do anything different because you don't really learn much you go to a a focus group like collaboration cures uh, and man you come away from there and you can't not change what you do right and it sparks this conversation and and it pulls people together and it creates these little subgroups become bigger groups and we're becoming a bigger and bigger movement so to speak i'm not sure what the right term is but this group you know we're all working going towards the same goal all driving together and you know people that are are gathered together in small groups like this with this kind of passion they don't have um uh what do we call it agendas that require them to hold back information right Their, their agenda is to spread it out Right. And so the, 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 the kind of people that I, I think of is like, you know, there's there's more pie than anybody can eat. Mm-hmm. And so the more we talk about, the bigger the pie gets. And so there's no reason to, to hoard my piece of the pie. Right. You know, I got plenty of pie. So uh, so let me tell you what I know. And you tell me what you know. Right. And that makes us stronger, too. Right. 
Right. What's that old quote? If I if I have an apple and you have an apple and we exchange apples, we each have an apple. But if I have an idea and you have an idea, now we exchange those and we each have two ideas. Right. You know, so that, that so multiply that across eight hundred people at collaboration cures, mm-hmm. you know, and look what happens. Right. You know? It is it is definitely powerful. It right. is. Well, I thank you so much for being on our podcast and sure. for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, it's it's such a, a pleasure. You know, this is this is well, you you might be able to tell I'm I'm energetic about this. <laughs> yes, you are. I know. I appreciate that. I yeah, appreciate thank that. you. And thank you for you and, 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 and the Children's Airway First Foundation. I think it's new. It's a year old. Congratulations mm-hmm. on that. Thank you. And the work that you and, and Candy and Brad and the other uh, advisory council are, are doing, all my heroes on the advisory council. Uh, I mean, this is going to be something that's going to be a, a game changer for our profession. And that changes the world. And I that's what so. we're after, isn't it? It, you know? it is. It's absolutely what we're after. Yeah. A huge thank you to today's guest, Dr. Stephen Carsonson, for sharing his medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave us a review or a comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.